0: Good morning. This morning we're going to pick up in uh, Matthew 5, where we left off. We're going to be in verses 17 through 20, and I want to open today just by reading uh, the passage for us. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot, one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men to do so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Some pretty powerful words. And uh, I want to just kind of break it down and go bit by bit through it is is typically my style and if you will remember three weeks ago we looked at at the rabbinical usage of the phrases to abolish and to fulfill and so i'm not going to spend a ton of time today rehashing Uh, i want to i want to look at them with a little bit different perspective but i just want to really point out up front that that if you will remember jesus was in the triangle right the the uh the orthodox triangle He's in the, the place where the scholars of his day lived, where they had, had their schools. And he's giving this message, yes, to, to common people, but there are rabbis, Pharisees, and their disciples gathered there. And so the reality is probably one of these guys has said, and Jesus is, is interpreting the text, has said, Rabbi, if they do that, they are, you have abolished the law, and, and he is rebutting that. That makes the most sense to me. He is rebutting that statement, even though we don't have it physically recorded in the text. He's rebutting that, and he's saying why. He's not, he's not causing us to, to break the text, but to actually keep it in the correct intent of the Father. So, for now, let's start out by saying Jesus is using rabbinic language He's in the place where the scholars are. He's using their language to talk to them. Um, He says to them in his rebuttal, the law is useful. I didn't come to get rid of it. I'm not teaching against it. The law shouldn't be abandoned. In fact, my ministry is entirely based on it. And that, yes, of course we need to know the law. It's the Father's standard for how you and I are to live. What I will say is my, my... parenthetical insert for us today would be this. While the law is important, we need to look at it, we need to study it through the lens of Jesus, through the lens of his interpretation. In the coming weeks, we're going to look at some pretty hard pieces of text, the the you-have-heard statements, and every one of those you have heard, you can go back and you can source it from the Old Testament. And Jesus is going to to not just say, "Uh, no, don't worry about that. He's going to take it to a much deeper level. He's going to ramp up the law, if you will, uh, rather than push it to the side. But I think it's important for you and I, as as we begin to dig into these things, to look at the text through the lens of how Jesus interprets it. So the second part of 17 is, I have come not to abolish it, but to fulfill it. What does this mean? And again, three weeks ago we talked about the, the Hebraic idiom, meaning that I'm coming to give you the correct interpretation or to interpret it in a way that you can fulfill it or carry it out. But I think it also means four other things. First, I think that the Jesus is saying that the Hebraic text, what we call the Old Testament, points specifically to his person, to him, his incarnation, his life, and his ministry. It all points to him. In fact, in uh, Luke 24, verses 27, and again in 44, Jesus talks about uh, how all of the texts, so the first one is the Emmaus Road, and he describes himself to these two guys he's walking with on the Emmaus Road after the crucifixion and the resurrection. And then the latter in 44, he's talking to the disciples just before his ascension, saying that, that all of the prophets in the law were, were about me. And he's explaining that. I'm going to put a verse up on the screen here uh, from John, and I just want to read this with you. I think this is incredibly clear. And again, Jesus is saying, It's all about me. John, thir- uh, John 5, 39, and 40. You search the scriptures. He's speaking to, to the religious leaders of the day says, you search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. Jesus is saying, look, you guys go to the text looking for this salvation, this righteousness, and you don't even see it standing right in front of you because all of that is God's testimony of who I am. Second, I think it means that Jesus is the literal fulfillment, right? The literal fulfillment of the things spoken by the prophets. We know that there are literally hundreds of prophetic statements, prophecies, that, that talked about where he would be born, um, the, the lineage that he would come from, the, the conditions of, of the situation that he would be born into. And Jesus comes into creation... And he fulfills literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these. So he is the literal fulfillment of the law and the prophets. In fact, he is the Lamb of God. When, when we talk about the law, the law has a penalty. When, when you violate the law, there is a penalty, a, a price that has to be paid. And Jesus becomes the very Lamb who is the payment for our inability to keep the law. Uh, He fulfills the law and the prophets in the sense that, again, he was predicted hundreds of places, and I'm going to mention four or five here, Uh, Psalm 22, Micah 5, Hosea 11, Jeremiah 31, Isaiah all over the place, 40, Isaiah 9, Isaiah 53, literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of references to this coming Messiah, statistically impossible for a human to meet all of those criteria written hundreds of years in advance. But he does. He comes, and he, he literally fills a huge chunk of those. Now, obviously, they haven't all been fulfilled. There are things that speak very specifically about his second coming, about when he comes in, in judgment rather than coming to bring grace, coming to bring salvation. There'll be a time where he comes to bring judgment on creation, and those things haven't been fulfilled yet. But he also fulfills the law in the sense that this is going to sound weird, but you kind of expect that from me, right? He fulfills the law in the sense that he fills it full, Think of the law as like glass jars, right? And to the people, the law was given, and and they're these glass jars, these empty jars that they go by and they they check off. I've I've done that, I've done that. Okay, I haven't done that. Jesus comes along, and, and in his explanation and in his life as he lives out the law without violating it, right, he fills those jars full with meaning with the richness and the original intent that the Father had when he gave the law to the people. So all the things, you know, we're going we're to be in the, in the coming weeks looking at the you have heard statements, right? Some, some really powerful statements from the Master. You have heard it said, but I tell you. And again, he, he doesn't say you have heard it said, don't do this, and I tell you, don't worry about it. He says, you have heard it said, it's wrong to do this, and I tell you, if you even think about it in your heart, you've already committed the sin. He ramps up the law. Number three, I think he I think he's saying that he, he perfectly lived out the law. He, he is the one who is the fulfillment in that he, he kept it completely. The only human whoever lived without sin, right? So he he kept it perfectly, and then he is the perfect interpreter of the law. You and I accept that this this Jesus, this Messiah, is the Son of God. And if you'll remember a couple weeks ago, I talked about how at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it says that the people looked at him with awe. They were amazed at his teaching because he spoke as one with authority. And we said that Well, obviously, the the rabbis who were there with their disciples, they had authority because it was the greatest honor in the culture to be called to be a disciple of the rabbi. So there was authority there, but Jesus spoke with a different kind of authority, and we agreed that that authority was the authority of the Father. And in fact, if, if Jesus is truly the Son of God, then he is the authoritative interpretation. So the lens that we need to approach the text, the law is the lens of Jesus and how he describes it, how he lived it out. Verse 18, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, not one jot or one tittle will pass from the law until all is accomplished or all is fulfilled, until heaven and earth pass away. Are heaven and earth still here? Jesus is saying every word, every letter of the text is inspired, and it all has something to accomplish, and it's not going anywhere until every bit of it has been fulfilled. And I think there's actually something really rich here. Um, Let's go ahead and look at the the last slide that I have for this morning. What is a jot or a tittle anyway? So a jot is an English word to translate the Greek iota okay which is a translation of the hebrew letter the 10th letter of the hebrew alphabet the yod the yod is the smallest character in the hebrew alphabet the tiniest letter and a tittle you'll see on the screen i have the letters the hebrew letters beth and kaf which look almost identical except for the beth has a tail at the bottom a lot like an o and a q okay so a tittle is the decorative tail or a decorative hook, which I don't have showing. But if you'll notice at the top of all the letters, it has that kind of little upsweep. That's a crown. Those are tittles. Jesus is saying not the smallest letter of the text, not even the characteristic decorative pieces of the letters will pass from the law until all have been accomplished. That's powerful. The very pieces of the letters have meaning. All Scripture matters. It's all significant. None of it is going anywhere until all of it is fulfilled. Verse 19. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches men to do so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. You see, starting in verse 19 and going all the way through verse 48, through the the you-have-heard statements, Uh, Jesus is going to begin to open up and to describe to his audience what we're going to learn is a greater righteousness, and that's going to make sense when we get to verse 20. Jesus is saying, look, you can't relax the commandments. If we relax them, there's consequences, severe consequences sometimes. But what I want to point out here really quick is, notice in the verse what is not said. Let me read it again. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men to do so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Do you, do you hear where that person is? I think it's incredibly important to point this out for, for, to prevent any risk of you thinking that this is any kind of legalism at all. The person who breaks these and teaches others to do so is still in the kingdom here. This isn't a salvation issue. Our salvation is not tied to works. At least not our works. It's tied to one person's work, a completed work. Let's read the rest of the verse. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom. So it's a matter of position. If, if we are obedient, and we teach others to be obedient, then there is the position of being great in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. How does that sit with you? What do you think of when you hear that? You remember who the scribes and Pharisees were? They were well-known. For their scrupulous nature, their exacting detail by which they did all of the external things. They kept the checklist really well, and they wanted everyone to know it. So, how does that how does that make you feel? Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. As we study the text, we see that, that Jesus constantly goes against the leaders and he's regularly railing on them for things related to their, to their acts of righteousness, right? Why would he rail on them for what they're doing and how they're doing it, and then say to his audience, but unless you do it better than they do, you're not getting in. Does that make sense? I don't know about you guys, but I have struggled with this, this verse for, for a very, very long time. And it wasn't until I realized and, and came across another Hebraism, that this really began to make sense. So I want to open that today or unpack that today, and and hopefully it'll help bring some some clarity to this this particular verse, because I think a lot of people struggle with this. They read it, and, and they don't know how to deal with that, because Jesus rails on these guys for what they do, and then seemingly says, but unless you do it better than they do, you're not getting in. And that, to me, doesn't make sense. So, the word here in the Hebrew for righteousness is uh, tzedakah. And that has an original intent, right? Obviously, we're, we're talking about the, the Hebrew behind the Greek text. But tzedakah means righteousness in the sense that it is the Father's righteousness, the divine righteousness, his work within his people. And they, they understood that. But in the first century, there had been this, this within rabbinic circles, this growing usage of the word tzedakah to represent their acts, their righteous acts, their almsgiving, their tithing, the things that they did publicly. And so what I think here, I think that, that Hebraism is the key behind this particular verse in that Jesus is saying to them, look, if your righteousness is only based on your acts, you're never getting in. Unless your righteousness is a righteousness that that surpasses the good deeds of the scribes and the Pharisees, unless you have the divine righteousness of God working in you and transforming you from the inside, you can't come into the kingdom. I think that's the key to the text. So the Pharisees, they they externalized the law. They, They... Everything was about the going through the motions, the, the behaviors, the showing it outwardly what they were done. It had become very legalistic to them. Not all of them. I'm sure there were some that were, were truly pious. But as a whole, they were, they were recognized for the outward actions of righteousness. And everything had become a checklist of, of do's and do nots. They had developed a system of, of laws around the laws. Um, not just the Pharisees, even, even the priests had done this, but, but they had developed fence laws, right? And there are thousands of these fence laws that they said, if we make all of these, these fence laws, then we can keep the people from getting anywhere near God's laws and breaking them. But these fence laws were so many and they were so severe. In fact, let's, let's look at it this way. I believe in Matthew 23, verse 4. It said this way: they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move their finger to help. So they created all of these rules that they expect the people to follow, but they do nothing to help them. They manipulate the law. They 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 had a righteousness that was a self righteousness. They were not righteous. They. They were religious, they were proud, they were arrogant. And Jesus is saying it's, it's not just the externals, it's relationship. That if your heart is right, if you are in right relationship with the Father, then the externals flow naturally out of that. If you are truly living in right relationship with the Father, you will be obedient to what He wants. Matthew 15, 8 says it this way. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. There was an external religiosity, but God rejects that. He doesn't want a religiosity. He wants a relationship. Ours is is an obedience that is a a duty of delight. If if we delight in who God is and what he desires for us, rather than just check off the list, right, right? That's what he rails on the leaders for. They're they're doing right things, but they're not doing things right. There's no heart in what they're doing. It's all about, got it, got it, got it. Yep, avoided that, got it. But there's no relationship. And that's what the call is to us. And as we open up the, I've heard statements in the coming weeks as we dig into how Jesus interprets the text, how he interprets the law. And how he applies it to the people. We need to pay attention. Because that's what he's saying to you and I. He's saying, we've been told what God expects. We've been told how to live a righteous life. And in fact, he walked it out in front of us to show us. And we know that we're not ever going to be perfect, right? But that's what the law of grace is all about. It's not to say that God's requirements are gone. But Jesus has already paid the penalty. Because the one who came and lived the law was the literal fulfillment, lived it perfectly and walked it out without sin, went to a cross and died for sin that he didn't commit. That's what we celebrate every week when we take communion, is his willingness to put on human flesh and live perfectly and then die for us. Jesus begins to reveal the true intent of the law. The law was meant to crush us, to to point out our sin, our failure to obey the law, and to point us to the Savior. And I said earlier that Jesus will begin to ramp up the law. His his demand for a higher righteousness is meant to to wound us, but not in a way that we can't recover, but in a way that we, we see the need for a Savior. It is to point us to the Father's work within us and tell us to stop relying on our own works. Not that we don't do our works, but where the works come from is not out of, an, out of a desire to earn anything, but knowing that we've already received that which we can never earn. If we come to the law and we read it and we pat ourselves on the back, We have self-righteousness the law is the guidepost by which we say here's what god wants here's what he desires and here's where i fall short and it doesn't say you can't get up and keep going because that's what grace is all about grace says that the payment the penalty has already been paid so we can get up and through god's mercy we can continue to walk forward to be shaped more and more into the likeness of his son Jesus will go on to show them and us that keeping the true intent of the law is is impossible for man. The law is not lacking anything. It's perfect, according to Psalm 19.7. But we live in a sinful and a fallen world, and even when we don't commit the physical act of sin, we still think about things that are sinful. That's what's meant when, when we are commanded to take every thought captive, Right? When, when the sinful thought comes to our mind, we don't have any power to stop that. But what we do have the power to do is grab hold of that and take it to the throne. Give it to the Father so that His Spirit within us can work to prevent us from moving into the sin. Because Jesus will say, you didn't commit the act, but if you thought it, you've already committed the sin. And so all of us have sinned and fall short. But by the grace of God, we can take hold of that and take it to the throne and receive grace. The law was never intended to save anyone. It was given specifically to reveal our sin, to convict us of it, to make clear our name for the Savior, to point us to him, the only means of attaining salvation. The righteousness or the tzedakah that surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees is shown in living out a right relationship with the Father through the Son by the transforming power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, living a life of thankful obedience to His commands, instructions, and teachings with a heart of gratitude for what has already been done for us at the cross. Would you pray with me? Father, we have we have looked at a, a tough piece of text this morning. And Father, as we, as we internalize and we, we study on it and think on it, Father, I pray that you would, through your indwelling Spirit in each of us, reveal yourself. Reveal your, your love and your grace and your mercy. But show us, point us to your righteousness. Create in us a desire to be molded and shaped more and more into the likeness of your Son, our Savior, our King. It's in his name that I pray.